Coming to you from Boise, Idaho, the fastest growing city in the U.S. and recognized as one of the most creative and vibrant cities to live in. This is a special edition of Enhancing the Human Experience, a World of Creativity, a series of unique interviews with successful people from around the globe, how they get inspired, where their ideas come from, and how they apply creativity in their business and personal lives. Now, here's your host, Mark Phillips, along with special guest interviewer, Mark Stinson. Okay, we've got another great interview here for our World of Creativity series within Enhancing Human Experience. Welcome, Mark. Oh, hi. How are you doing, Mark? Great, great. So well, who have we got here on the well, other line? Well, it's a terrific uh, episode we've got planned for you. Uh, we're going to be talking with Paolo Mercado, uh, who's in Manila in the Philippines. And Paolo is a, uh, by profession, he's working as a senior vice president at Nestle Philippines in marketing, communications, but uh, an interesting title added on to that is the area of innovation. Mm -hmm. So I thought uh, from a creative standpoint, Paolo's got a, a lot of things to share with us. Uh, obviously before uh, Manila, he obviously uh, or also worked in Nestle in China and so has a broad view of Asia and the dynamic uh, markets there, and all the creative stimulation and inspiration uh, that we can draw from that. So, Paolo, we're really glad to have you on the podcast today. Hi. Thanks, Mark. Glad to be in the show. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, Paolo, as, as a communications, marketing, and innovation person, I think to, to start with, what sort of projects are you working on today? Well, um, uh Broadly speaking, for uh, for Nestle Philippines, so one of the let's say the the most time-consuming creative work that we do is all the advertising, you know, um, uh, and we come up with uh, quite a number of ads every year. So um, uh, so advertising production, um, including all of the digital marketing work, is a constant um, uh, stream of work that my department helps to supervise on behalf of the brands. And we work with, uh, with the ad agencies or the digital agencies to produce that work. So I would say that occupies uh, um, a, a good chunk of my time uh, together with my team. And um, the other aspects of that, of course, what feeds into the, into the advertising work is all of the um, uh, market research and business analytics. So that also um, uh, is a major part of the process that we, uh, that we go through. And then last, of course, not the least, um, I wish I were spending more time on this one, is the innovation part. And the innovation part is, I would say at this point, isn't so much managing each and every um, innovation project of Nestle Philippines, because there, there are project managers for that embedded in the business units, um, but rather um, uh, helping guide the the process of innovation from uh, uh, opportunity identification all the way to ideation, screening, and uh, of course, eventually the launch plans that go with it. So that's in a nutshell, uh, the scope of, of my role in Nestle Philippines. Yes. And, and remind us uh, some of the product lines and brands, uh, because I'm sure we recognize them. Uh, Nestle is a terrific uh, global brand in and of itself. But what are some of the brands underneath that umbrella? Yes. So um, among the global brands that, that we handle in the Philippines, of course, there's Nescafe. Um, so I would say that's the best known globally. Um, uh, and then we have, um, let's say, regional brands like Milo. So Milo is a 
uh, chocolate malt beverage, um, similar to Nesquik, but uh, but much more sports oriented or sports positioned in the um, uh, in the uh, developing markets. And then we have our uh, powdered milk brands. Um, so those are quite local. So Bear brand is our biggest one. And then uh, we have our confectionery brands. So KitKat uh, is also in the market. So I would say those would be some of the most recognizable brands. That's terrific. Mm. All brands I enjoy. Yeah, no, right. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to talk about Nestle. Um, Well, that's terrific. And so, uh, Paolo, you know, from a from a creative standpoint, and this is the the basis of our conversation is really the creative process and Mm -hmm. sort of where ideas come from. Right. Right. I, I loved your thought that, you know, the basis of all these campaigns, the advertising is the fun output. But the market research and the analytics, you know, um, the, the real getting to know the customer. Tell yeah. us a little bit about how you get a sense of what the consumer is looking for and maybe what their problems are. How, how do you go about understanding that uh, with your teams? Right. So, um, well, actually, this is quite um, uh, it, it's been quite a journey to uh, to bring I would say uh, consumer centricity in the um, uh, in all of the marketing communications that we do. Um, uh, when we uh, when we take a look at the um, so I'll, I'll talk on two levels. I would say one is the, the Nestle way or, or or what we call brand building the Nestle way and what is prescribed in that way of working, and the other one is my own approach uh, to it or my own take to it. So um, in the, let's say, the global approach that we have, there are always um, a a couple of fundamentals that we need to have in order to build great brands. And the first one is um, a very clear understanding of a well-defined target consumer um, that is the, the consumer that we choose to delight and not just the broad consumer uh, uh, that we, you know, that we, that we just, um, uh, you know, um, the core target that we want to love us rather than everybody who we just want to like us. So, so getting very, very focused on a core narrow target consumer is the first step and the first fundamental that we build. Um, in parallel to that, there must be a very clear understanding of what the brand is all about, what we call the brand essence and the brand purpose, and how those two link together on, let's say, a very deep level. So um, uh, so if the core target, for example, is working class Filipinos who need, um, who really have to work hard to up, uh, uplift themselves and their families, and the role, for example, that Nescafe plays, in helping those people rise up each and every day and face the uh, the hard realities of um, of life in the Philippines and that uh, and the role that cup of coffee plays in giving them that little boost every morning do that so we keep true to that and that is articulated in what's called the creative big idea and then from the big idea whether it's a product specific communication or a more uplifting brand equity communication brief we then tailor fit um, the communication tasks according to uh, the business needs of, let's say, uh, generating demand for particular products or um, uh, for strengthening the brand equity we have with the target consumer. So that is, I would say, 
broadly the the basics of it. What um, uh, what I am or what I try to push with the marketing community in the Philippines is is two parts. One is bringing back the uh, consumer intimacy into uh, uh, let's say the work rhythm of um, uh, of the marketing teams, because as in many organizations and many big corporations, we are very uh, data heavy, report heavy, and sometimes a tendency is that we pay a lot more attention to, let's say, the performance of our sales, um, uh, pushing into key customers, or uh, looking at our sales offtake levels, or things like that. And we lose the time and intimacy that we actually spend on the field with consumers and just getting to know them on, let's say, a life level before trying to uh, um, uh, uh, essentially push our uh, demand targets on them. So um, getting into the habit or, and, and helping our marketing teams get into the habit of spending time with consumers for me is important. Um, and for me, that's foundational because that's empathy work. And, um, and with empathy and with the habit of empathy building over time, we get to pick up the insights that happen more on the life level that then enriches our, not only our communications, but, uh, but uh, from time to time, it also enriches the innovation ideas that we have. Well, wow. that's wonderful. I really admire that idea of, of empathy you know, and delight. Uh, yeah. And how you contribute to the life. Uh, what, what you were describing about uh, Nescafe's role, for example, you know, it's a cup of coffee, yes, but it's a boost. And it's, uh, you know, uh, a kickoff, you know, to, a, to what might be a tough day. So yeah. uh, that's very good. And, and uh, Paulo, as I recall, your, your educational background began in psychology and kind of yeah. the social psychology work. Is this idea of empathy and understanding how it fits in their life, uh, does it have a basis in, in some of that work that you did uh, from an academic standpoint? Uh, yes. And uh, let me pull this back a bit, because if the topic is on creative process, I was thinking about the, the question. Um, and I, I look at myself um, in a few lenses. Um, one right now and my, my current profession, I'm actually more of a, um, one, a creative buyer in a sense because I buy uh, uh, creative work or I procure creative work with our ad agencies. Um, I'm also a creative facilitator in the sense of trying to get um, our own marketing teams, especially in the innovation front, to be doing the ideation themselves and, and to be discovering the insights. Now, yes, a lot of the, the, let's say, my focus on understanding people at the life level and the work of empathy um, does have strong roots in psychology, but I would even pull it back one step further is that the first reason that I went to into psychology actually was um, um, uh, was uh, it's it more deeply rooted in the theater background that I had, and this was more in high school and in college, where I was very fascinated with the work of theater, and that's where I describe myself as a creator. You know, where I'm not just a a buyer of of uh, uh, creativity, but I was quite involved in the creative process, both as an actor and as a playwright. And for me. Um, in that particular field, empathy is critical. Empathy with the characters that you portray on stage, 
But the, the wonderful thing about theater also as a, as a creative form is that it's a form where you actually co-create with your audience. Yes, you've got the script. Yes, you've got uh, lines to deliver and blocking to, um, you know, to adhere to, more or less, you know, if you, if you like your director and you don't ask yes. but <laughs> But the real theater experience is really that emotional dialogue that you're having with the audience. And um, that type of emotional dialogue um, is, I would say, quite unique in the theater or in live performing arts because the show isn't the show without the audience response. And the work of empathy in uh, theater is quite, um, is quite it, it's not only essential, it's actually quite brutal. That if you don't have the empathy as an actor for your character and for your audience, the show will not fly. It will not succeed. And so for me, a lot of, I would say, my own uh, creative process in a professional field is influenced a lot by the things that I've learned um, in my younger years in the theater. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that because uh, these are things that you don't always see on the resume, no. you know, and they're, they're not on the, well, it's interesting the to underneath. See yeah. You know, I mean, you experience. know, all of us bring everything we've done and who we are to what we're doing currently. And we flavor it in a unique way, don't we? And you, and we can see that in what you're, what you've just explained to us, Paulo. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And are you able to use any of these, uh, you know, theater and uh, play, techniques in any of your like brainstorming sessions, ideation oh, sessions. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how does that work with your team to really, that I can imagine you've got to spark their creativity and like you said, uh, get them thinking out of the box too. Yes. Um, one of the core uh, elements of, um, uh, of any brief that we have is, um, is the contextual insight um, of the consumer um, uh, which, um, which then, by the way, uh, 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 becomes the core of, uh, what, let, let's call it a communication brief. Um, we also use it for an innovation brief, but, but let's say in a communication brief, getting the contextual insight right is critical. And for me, two things. One, broadly, you have to have time. You, um, you can't make up the contextual insight. It really needs to come from um, the work that needs to be done in terms of qualitative research, field research, or, or even just the ethnography work that we do. But then I would say the theater work and the psychology work comes into understanding motivations and understanding that different, uh, that how motivations play and how, um, let's say, and where do motivations come from and how that influences uh, the end result of a behavior. Roughly speaking, um, let's say, the, 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 I, I tend to be very psychoanalytic in my approach, that motivations can be rooted from a, um, uh, from a feeling level or from a feeling center or a heart center. It can come from a more instinctive gut center, um, or it co can come from an idealistic head center. And based on the type of consumer that you have, their motivations may be rooted in one of these centers. And then their approach and response, therefore, to uh, messages, communications, et cetera, would be very different. And so that's where it kind of blends. You know, I mean, I got into those areas of, 
of understanding psychoanalysis, understanding archetypes, etc. Because I was um, uh, uh, not only acting on stage, but um, in my early years, writing in my own place, and to be able to develop characters, I had to give them more wholeness. And wholeness comes from um, uh, an understanding, really, of uh, psychological motivations. So that got me into psychology and later on into, a, into the field of consumer behavior and consumer understanding, which then led me to what I'm doing now. Yes. Wow. Well, and, and I can imagine that, uh, at least in my experience with market research, people aren't always uh, easy to, it's not always easy for them to express their motivations. So you've, you've mentioned things like qualitative interviews, but also ethnography, where yeah. you're literally interacting, watching, um, yeah. getting the feelings of the consumer. Uh, what, what sort of techniques or what sort of processes from an ethnography standpoint uh, do you guys apply? Um, what we watch for is, uh, is, or what I always tell my team is, okay, you come in with a discussion guide, but listen for feelings and not just words. Uh, so that's one of the things that we're, uh, we're quite, uh, conscious of. So when a conversation, um, generates excitement and fast responding and a lot of uh, smiles and expressiveness, we take note of that, that, hey, this is a passion subject or we're touching on to something that's quite important to the, uh, to the consumer. For our ad testing, actually, we, um, uh, we work with a research agency that actually records uh, facial expressions. And we pay attention to that when we craft the advertising just to make sure that we're hitting the right emotional cues as well. So that's nonverbal. I mean, they, they may rate the ad in a particular way from a rational aspect, but then we also see that, look, if they're rating, you know, that they like it, but they're actually not smiling, you know, we know we're not, we're not hitting the right buttons uh, yes. on this one. So um, that's a part of it. And, Together with, with some of our ad agencies I, um, um, and even our research partners, I, I like very much the use of the, uh, the archetypes when describing um, essentially how we portray our brand and the archetypes that um, our consumers in the market, um, let's say, are used to from a cultural point of view. You know, so if we portray the brand as a hero, what are the archetypes of a hero from pop culture that are that always, let's say, uh, hit the right buttons uh, for the consumer? So then we go into that aspect. So that's where both uh, psychology, uh, cultural context needs to come into play into the creative process. Oh, this is great. Thanks for sharing those uh, tools. It's interesting you're talking about the facial recognition. I remember years ago, before a lot of the technology that we have now, I had a mentor who suggested just when you watch the videos of the research, turn the volume down mm-hmm. and just watch the body language. Mm-hmm. Yep. Are they are they smiling like you said? Are they leaning up and engaged in the conversation, or are they back or their arms crossed? You know, yeah. uh, are they engaged? And uh, so these nonverbal cues are are very important, and, and the archetypes is a great tool as well. You know, I, I also, uh, we were talking just before we came on the recording uh, about your background in academia uh, at mm. the Berlin School of yes. uh, Creative Thinking. And, I, and I'm very interested in uh, how you take the 
you know, you've been describing the practical applications of creativity, but to step back into an academic study of creativity, uh, mm-hmm. what were some of your key takeaways from, from those studies? Well, uh, the, the Berlin School, uh, so it's an executive MBA program. It's actually at the core of it. It's, um, it's um, not so much about uh, studying creativity per se or how to be creative. And they're very clear on that when you, when you sign up. But it's really about how do you uh, manage and lead creativity as a, as a resource for your company. You know, so... It is about managing creative people and creative resources um, geared towards essentially business productivity. So it, it sounds quite, um, I would say, it, it sounds a bit uh, uh, different from, from an artistic creative process, but, uh, but it is, um, uh, let's say, the challenge of the times because... Um, and I can talk a bit more about my area of focus in, in that study. But when you really take a look at uh, uh, companies today, and this is something I'm still trying to convince my own company, that the value of a company, everyone always says the value of the company is its people. But at the core of it, the value of a company is the creativity of its people, their ability to contribute uh, uh, to building new ideas that create value in society or in, uh, or at the very least for the customers that they serve. And, uh, and the, let's say, the, the, uh, the big concept of the Berlin School is that most MBA programs were created in an industrial age um, uh, and let's say, uh, and have very um, industrial process style of management and leadership in terms of creating highly efficient organizations, rather um, uh, and um, and very productive organizations, but geared towards quite a uh, an old model of uh, economies of scale and creating efficiencies and managing the bottom line, uh, both the, the top line and the bottom line. But it doesn't really pay attention to the person in the organization as a creator. And how do you, cre- uh, and how do you as a manager, build, uh, first of all, recruit creativity into your organization Retain that creative uh, power, uh, that, that uh, creative, let's say, um, for lack of a better word, goldmine uh, of talent in your organization. And how do you nurture it? How do you nurture it with uh, the environment? How do you nurture it with policies? How do you nurture it with um, um, uh, with uh, uh, a work culture that keeps people wanting to be uh, creative and productive for your company? So that's the thrust of Berlin School. And, and for me, I, I found it really, really quite an interesting um, uh, program. I tried, to, uh, I tried to put it into practice in managing my own teams and working with my own, um, let's say, advertising and even research suppliers. But to a greater extent also, I've turned it into uh, 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 an advocacy which is the other dimension of, of what I'm doing now 
in in leading this uh, this advocacy on creative economy but i can talk about that a bit more um we, we definitely want to get into that you you've raised uh, a few very interesting points that i wanted to take apart a little bit more and that uh, i really liked your twist on it's not just the uh, people as assets but the creativity of people mm-hmm. um but you also mentioned, you know, how do you recruit and nurture and grow it? How would you say you can evaluate one's creativity, you know, through the recruiting and hiring and, and uh, onboarding process? Oh, uh, frankly, I wish I had a better system (laughs) (laughs) for it. I mean, if if you have a a technique, I'd certainly love it. Um, um, it, it's difficult. It's really difficult, especially in the context um, uh, in the context of uh, uh, of Nestle, which in the first place I have to convince to recruit for creativity and not just for, let's say, uh, the more functional technical skills of brand brand marketing and management. Um, I, I need to go back a bit to uh, my. Uh, my learning experience, I wouldn't say successes, but my learning experience um, with uh, when I was managing an ad agency and trying to recruit uh, creative talent. Uh, what I can say is that, well, clearly uh, portfolio history is part of it. Um, uh, and uh, the, the interview, first interview, honestly, that's not very helpful um, if it's just a standard interview. Um Ultimately, I would really say it, it needs to be about um, will the person fit into the creative culture that you're trying to develop? And, and that, I would say, would be unique depending on um, each organization. And generally, there are uh, a couple of, um, let's say, strong models. One model is um, uh, the Steve Jobs model where you have uh, a, a genius-led creative organization, and um, and he is surrounded, uh, and, and they push for excellence, and they attract people of a very very high caliber. But it's also a a pressure tack that everyone is pressured to perform to a standard that is essentially defined by the creative leader. Most ad agencies have a history of that model. Uh, but then alternative models that, that, that people uh, have is really the, um, the collaborative or, or, or I wouldn't say wisdom of the crowd, but definitely working groups as the source of creativity. Um, you tend to see that more with, with Google. Google does, uh, today doesn't seem to be a monolithic creator, but really creative teams uh, that emerge. Um, they have their own ways of working and their own way of of, um, of raising their creative um, output, but it's more team-based rather than individual-based. So I think recruiting um, and finding the creativity first needs to be rooted in how the organization itself um, understands its own creative process, and then they must recruit according to that. That's great. And, and the, uh, the age-old question, can a person become more creative? You know, people say, oh, he's so creative, as if it's inborn. Uh, but can you develop a creative muscle? You know, can it, can it be improved? Uh, yes, um, uh, because the opposite is true. <laughs> can it atrophy? 
um, and if it can, uh, um, and definitely I have seen and experienced uh, um, uh, on a personal level times when my own creativity is, you know, you really get into a slump. Um, and I've seen also very high performing creative people get into a slump. So when you see if, if the opposite is true, that people can deteriorate in that creativity, then almost by definition, there are circumstances that allow them to, to improve. And, and I would say it's a, it's a tricky balance of the right environment where you have, um, uh, it's tricky. I, I, people say a lot about psychological safety, creating safe space, etc. But at the same time, a lot of brilliant ideas come from extremely unsafe psychological environments, and uh, in the sense that um, that when when in in my experience working with some very very brilliant creative people, they can be quite brutal uh, to their team in terms of critiquing ideas, etc. So there is that tricky balance of critique, collaboration, competitiveness. Um, uh, and always pushing for a higher standard. So these things are necessary uh, for, for, in my view, for creativity to really flourish. Uh, that competition and pressure, I do believe, is essential to getting the creative um, uh, environment right. Um, maybe I'll talk. Uh, maybe, yeah. yeah. I want to well, give a couple of examples on this one, but yeah, I'm sure. Please do. Now, because I think um, as we, uh, you know, I won't say elevate, but at least uh, as we focus now on personal development, not just hmm. business or professional development, if somebody says, look, I want to pursue a creative avenue, uh, whether it's uh, in theater, like you were talking about your own personal experience, but, you know, music, uh, dance, hmm. uh, writing of any kind. And somebody says, I really need some tools. And if we think about it like a muscle, you know, <laughs> uh, it needs to be exercised. And so I am curious about some of your examples of, of maybe uh, methods or tools or processes one could access to improve their own creativity. Um, a, a couple of points. Um, one is... Uh, uh, the, the importance of getting the right mentor and the right support group. And by mentor, it's almost like a coach, actually. I, I don't like to use, to use the word mentor, but I, I prefer to use the word coach or even trainer in the athletic sense. That, yes, you've got your skills, but the person should be sharp enough to say that, look, in a, uh, in a um, uh, let's say, a global standard of creative excellence, you are actually more towards here. To give you the truth of where you stand as a, uh, whether it's a copywriter or a uh, film director or a playwright, etc. And to say that if you want to improve, you have to put in the work. And that's, a, that's a, um, the, the most productive creatives always talk about that there's a discipline. It's not just inspiration or artistic view all the time. They, they put in the hours, they put in the work of practicing, whether it's a musical instrument or, a, um, um, uh, or uh, writing or in their filmmaking. They put in the hours to that. But then also, they, they don't hide the work. They put it in, 
in a uh, um, uh, in a venue that allows it to be critiqued, and that's where courage comes in. Um, the courage to put the work out there, to acknowledge that that your work may not be uh, uh, the best, and if you get applauded, great. But if you get critiqued, um, use that as an opportunity to get better and better and better. So for me, it's that it's really that combination of putting in the work, um, uh, being open to critique, but then use critique to push yourself to be better. And and for me, that's where from an environment point of view, uh, the, the one thing that I don't think, uh, or, or the idea that I think is outdated is the lone artist with a vision and then who secludes himself like a hermit and then comes out with a brilliant, uh, 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 let's say, masterpiece after years mm-hmm. of incubating the idea. What I do see more and more is that uh, uh, creative environments requires actually communities of creative people who um, most of the time they compete with each other, but in the competition, they actually collaborate in a way to make each other's work better. Um, my favorite example, going back to my personal history in theater, is Broadway. You know, it's just crazy how um, how Broadway is, I forget the, the estimate of, of how many billions of dollars that it earns. It's such a small um, uh, area of New York leading global theater. And I think there are only about 40 uh, um, uh, performing spaces. But the intensity of competition um, uh, for audiences, for getting the show right, uh, but at the same time, while they're competing with each other, the theater community is actually a collaborative community. The actors know each other. The directors know each other. They know whose uh, play is coming on. They support each other, actually, when their play is coming on. So there is that aspect of of uh, both collaborating, being encouraging, but also competing. When your show is on, when my show is on, we're all competing for, for audience share. and And that dynamic of proximity, creating competition, creating markets um, that people buy for is then replicated not only in Broadway, it's been replicated in Silicon Valley, it's been replicated in Hollywood, and now more and more these creative clusters are coming out uh, in different countries. And I do feel that's a, a key dynamic to nurturing creativity, to be part of community, to be part of these clusters. And, and in building those communities, uh, entire economies uh, come out of that. Uh, you were mentioning that's another part of your efforts right now is is building creative community, expanding yep. creative economies. Uh, tell us more about uh, what are some of your efforts are in that area. Yes. So that was actually my thesis in uh, Berlin School. So I, I was fascinated with the subject of creative economy which is um, which is essentially a country-based um, agenda of recognizing creative industries as a unique sector, um, understanding its current contribution to GDP, and then setting a roadmap to accelerating growth, both through domestic and international trade in creative output, whether the output is a product or an idea. Um, uh, ideas meaning uh, um, uh, intellectual property licenses or patents, etc. 
And the gap that I saw in the Philippines is that there was there's no um, uh, at the time that I was writing there was still no formal uh, recognition of creative industries as a, an economic contributor. So what started off as a thesis and understanding current state in the Philippines, it soon grew to be, um, I would say, a very time-consuming advocacy because the, the people in government that I was interviewing, primarily from the Department of Trade and Industries, the uh, National Commission on Culture and the Arts, and a few other government agencies, they were, they, they, they were telling me, you can't leave that as an academi- a- academic thesis. Um, can you be an advisor uh, to us as, as the government now crafts its own creative economy agenda? So that's what I've been doing on the side. And, and there are several avenues to, to that, um, uh, including the development of creative clusters, getting local cities to adopt their own city-based creative economy um, agenda, uh, creative education is part of it, um, uh, as well as even creative tourism, uh, using creative festivals as a way to um, uh, to develop uh, um, uh, new streams of uh, tourism. So yeah, it's quite. A, um, I would say it's it's quite a, uh, a heavy involvement that I that I uh, that sort of came out of that very simple academic thesis. How much How much did you have to sell them on that, or were they ready to receive that? It sounds like they are on board with what you're doing. They were, um, I would say, um, uh, at least the, the people in government I've been talking to, the Department of Trade and Industry, they um, had been exploring the idea um, uh, about 10 years earlier in 2005. Um, the gap is... I would say, and and maybe that's where I was at the right place at the right time. They were working with academics previously and not people from the creative industries. Mm. Um, uh, And the other aspect of it was that um, um, the the problem that they had was that um, uh, in the Philippines, like in many countries, while the creative sectors have their own, let's say, industry organization, the government had a problem in finding who is the one group that I talk to if I want to understand the full landscape of uh, creative industries in the Philippines. Then the other aspect, which also made it a bit challenging for them, was that they were constantly confusing. And even today, I have to remind people that the creative economy policy is different from an arts and culture policy. There are overlaps, but an art and culture policy is more about growing uh, cultural identity uh, um, and where art is seen as part of cultural identity. And that's a different agenda. It's legitimate. Uh, But creative economy, it's about contribution to the economy through job creation and actual revenue. So, so, and I guess my business background plus my appreciation for the creative industries, not only through advertising, but through uh, performing arts. Um, my wife, actually, her parents are visual artists. So there's a circle of um, art and creatives that, that uh, I personally am aware of that allowed me to navigate the space in a way that is um, um, I would say 
uh, well, that the government is finding useful. Yeah. Mm, yes. Well, you're also bringing up a good point about uh, the commercial interests of creativity. That mm. you know, coming up with ideas or coming up with art for art's sake, uh, a painting that belongs in a museum is different than a painting that might be uh, in a gallery for sale, uh, mm. or even different than art created for say, advertising purposes. But uh, you're also uh, bringing up this idea of execution, that coming up with the idea is one thing, but mm-hmm. executing or implementing the idea. And I'm, I'm very interested in your mm. experience in bridging that gap to uh, make sure it's not just creativity for creativity's sake. Well, that's where my marketing background comes in. Um, um, in creative economy, creation serve a market. Um, and that's not my idea. That's uh, that's in the the book of uh, let's say one of the thought leaders in creative economy, Professor John Hawkins, that uh, creativity needs freedoms. Uh, everyone is born creative, but one of his uh, major tenets on creative ecology is that creativity needs markets, because without markets, without people who consume creativity, whether it's a piece of content or uh, uh, an app that they like to use or a game that they, they, they uh, use. Without the market, then um, uh, it's more a personal statement that some people can appreciate. But generally, it, it is really about creating these, whether it's a product or content or an experience that uh, serves an audience, uh, a consuming audience. And, and for me, that's what I keep bringing into the, um, uh, into the conversation and into the, uh, the um, ideation around creative economy policy. Well, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm mindful of our time, and it's been just a terrific conversation. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'd like to kind of end our discussion as we get more, more on a personal uh, level for you, Paolo. If, uh, if tomorrow you woke up and you had a challenge in front of you on your desk, um, after your Nescafe, which is going to give you that uh, first boost, but where, where would you go? You say, I'm, I'm stuck. I need, I need a boost of creativity. Uh, where would you go to get unstuck? What, what would inspire you? Uh, what would give you a, new, a fresh spark? Um. Personally, my process is, and maybe this is really from, from left field, but my process is um, um, I either uh, I run or I bike to the point of uh, exhaustion, you know. So running um, and cycling for me, between the two, more cycling is very centering um, uh, in the sense that it, uh, there's a certain Zen-like thing to, to, to cycling where you have to keep very focused to keep that bike upright and not get hit by a car. And it clears the mind in some way. And I always get my, the, uh, when I'm really faced with a, a challenge, I really literally just ride my bike. Um, somehow that does get um, uh, literally the juice is flowing. It clears my mind because I, I, I do it at the high intensity. And then at the moment when I am resting and recovering, that's when I try to approach things in a different way. I know it kind of sounds funny as a process, but it, it works for me. 
that's what I often do. When I'm really stuck, yep. I go out and ride my bike. We hear that uh, a lot from uh, other creative people mm-hmm. that there's something about getting the brain, you know, really and getting that heart pounding mm-hmm. um, that, that works a lot. Yes. I'm also interested, uh, you know, our theme of our podcast here is a world of creativity. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've only been to Mm -hmm. uh, the Philippines twice, but I found Manila to be a very vibrant, multicultural city. Mm. Um, You've lived and worked uh, in Asia. Um, What do you you see as the sort of cultural environment for creativity and, and what that kind of diversity brings? Um, Philippine creativity, and I go back also to something that, that's also core uh, to me. Uh, actually, empathy and reading feelings is quite important as a cultural trait. Um, uh, it is, if you look at the areas where the Filipino excels as an artist, it tends to be not conceptual creativity, not even des- uh, high-level design. We have very few designers who break through. But we do break through in, uh, in artistic or creative forms that are about human empathy. So, in the, uh, in, uh, so one very concrete example is that uh, the Filipino is uh, uh, the, um, the, um, the, greatest, the greatest number of Asian talent on Broadway is Filipino. And it's the same in the West End. And if you take a look at any um, um, uh, bar or performance venue or cruise ship um, or even Disneyland Hong Kong, majority of the performers there are Filipino. And it's not just because we sing well, but it's also because we convey a, a, a very strong emotion when we perform. And when you take a look at other areas where Filipino as a creative punches into um, let's say, a level of global excellence, it tends to be in forms that show a lot of human emotion. So some of the, the, the lead animators in Pixar are Filipino, and they, they tend to have subject matters that are, that are much more emotional in nature, um, like the animators in, uh, in Coco, and um, there's another one, um, uh, the one about, uh, precisely the one about the emotions, Inside right. Out. Um, uh, so, uh, so those are Filipinos around that, and even in some of the, the comic and illustrative forms. So it is, in our language, um, one of the most, um, let's say, um, uh, important trait of the Filipino is understanding and reading the room as far as the emotional state of people before you uh, uh, state your point of view or your position, that you need to feel, and the word is pakikiramdam, you have to feel the room and you have to go with uh, what the group, uh, uh, fully understand where the group is before you push your way through. And that's the way we create as well. It's a very empathetic, uh, uh, let's say, creative expression. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough, Paulo, for this uh, engaging conversation. I've learned a lot. And, and as we uh, summarize and conclude here, I'd be very interested to, to think about and get your opinion on what you think the state of creativity in the world today. How, how are we doing as a global creative community? Hmm. I've never thought of, of, of that. Um, I, I would say uh, definitely... 
we have been, um, and this is especially true in the digital world, um, um, have been through a tremendous boom of new ideas. Um, and and, uh, and the, the level of creativity is very high. But I think also we're coming to a point where we are creating monsters as well um, that may not have been there in the inception, but then they have these effects that uh, we don't intend. So in the, uh, of course, social media and the impact of social media on the fabric of society has been written about several times, but it's even in um, the creativity in innovation and um, one of them being the hot topic right now in the U.S. and in other countries on e-cigarettes, but how uh, a very highly creative and innovative product like Juul, which was intended for helping to people, uh, helping people quit, had the unintended effect of actually recruiting people to smoke. So, so I think we have a point where creativity and imagination, th there is no absence of it whatsoever. But I think we're coming to a point where do we need to put to market every creative idea we have just because it will sell and it will have a market? So is there a point on, and I was talking to, to, to uh, 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 Michael Barry, who uh, teaches at the D School in, in Stanford, and the conversation is, is there an ethic to innovation and creativity that we need to start taking a look at? Are there opportunities that we shouldn't fulfill? Or should we really ask the impact of releasing this into market? So I think we're getting to that point. Definitely creativity is alive and well, but I think we're also getting to a point on understanding that should we really go to market? What is the impact of this on the fabric of society? And there are those cases that are coming out, and I think that that will might put a, a, a break um, or slow down the pace of innovation. Well, it's a very thought-provoking point, uh, this sort of ethical consideration of creativity. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. Paolo, it's been terrific talking with you. Yeah, th thank you so much, Paolo. We, we do appreciate it. Yes, thank you very much. I'm uh, happy to contribute. Wow, what a great interview, Mark. It was terrific. We just want to thank uh, Paulo Mercado, who's the uh, SVP of uh, Marketing, Communications, and Innovation at Nestle in the Philippines for this uh, terrific interview. I, I think as I took away, uh, we were talking about the sound bites that we could have got out of this, oh, yeah. but uh, three main takeaways for me is the idea of uh, customer or consumer intimacy that uh, Paulo really thought from a creativity standpoint you know, to offset this number crunching and analytic side of the brain. You can watch the sales numbers and you can watch the ratings of, you know, various advertising. But the idea that you need to get close to the customer in a, in a very meaningful way to understand their emotions, to understand their motivations, um, I thought that was terrific. Mm -hmm. And it really drove everything they did. And this word empathy uh, came out very strong uh, mm -hmm. throughout the interview. The, the second point, and uh, you know, we've heard this phrase so many times, that the greatest assets of a company are its people. Mm -hmm. He added and twisted that, didn't he, mm -hmm. to, to be the creativity of its people. 
are a company's greatest assets. And mm-hmm. I just thought that was terrific and that they would recruit and hire and nurture and, you know, uh, grow the creativity of the people mm-hmm. uh, as a big asset. This idea that we were shifting from this iconic creative leadership where yeah. there was one person and he mentioned Stephen Jobs, but there's others uh, that were moving from this icon creative leader to more collaborative team approach. Mm-hmm. And that's been a pretty consistent theme in our other interviews that this idea of a world of creativity yeah. is that we need a diverse world, this community, you know, of the, a the team. lone person. They we have a number of people have mentioned that, haven't they? Yeah. No lone wolf anymore. Mm-hmm. And I guess the last thing was that, if you start as an individual and then you move to a creative team, ultimately it ladders up to a creative economy mm-hmm. and a creative cluster in a town, in a country. And uh, his work in these kind of creative economies I thought was very fascinating. And uh, we sort of were kidding him that uh, it was just a side job, you know, that uh, as a part-time a- entity, <laughs> he was working yeah. with government uh, mm. to try to build the creative economy. But it's a very worthwhile undertaking, and uh, I, I think he's just the kind of person that can lead it because he was talking about moving from just you know, maybe art and culture creativity mm-hmm. to the economic and commercial uh, development of an economy using creativity as a foundation. Yeah. You know, his his interview was a lot like Kevin Fox's interview, you know, where they're talking where there are artists that are actually affecting, you know, you know, revenue and driving revenue for companies and stuff like that. And they have that ability to span the gap. I, just, I think some some people cannot do that, right? Where you're just business mindset or you're just artist, you don't have the ability to kind of span that gap. That's right. And, and, you know, he was weaving his stories from theater mm-hmm. uh, and playwright, you know, uh, all through his interview. And it just reminded me when we're interviewing people uh, for jobs, for example, I always like to go to the bottom of the resume. You know, where are the interests mm. and the hobbies and what was your first job and what was your uh, side interest in college or something like that? Because, you know, on, on Paolo's LinkedIn profile, you're not going to find theater major, actor, playwright. Mm-hmm. And yet that is central to his Absolutely. creative foundation. And so, yes, he has degrees and yes, he has titles uh, and great uh, company experience. But look how much it, it was informed by his you know, more creative personal interest in the theater, uh, even his Broadway stories and analogies yeah. and things like that. Um, so a- as people, as we get to know people or if we're interviewing people for uh, gigs or for jobs, you know, it, it teaches me anyway to dig deeper yeah. into the individual and get to know them and their their total picture, not just what's listed on their job experience uh, on a resume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely has that that going on. One of the things that I found interesting was when he was talking about coming from the industrial era into this era that we find ourselves in now. How it almost sounds like it was just about production, and I think I think it was easier back then. From what I've read and from what I understand, it was like. Here's a product, here's a name, here's a couple of colors, people buy it. But now it seems like the marketplace is much more, there's a more need for creativity. And he spoke to that and he said, hey, you need to be more creative now because there's so much noise out there. There's so much, it's not as easy as putting a name on, slapping a name on something, is That's it? right, that's right. So yeah. just a fantastic interview. And there's there's a lot of other connections that uh, people like Paolo can make. So uh, just wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, that puts another one in the bank. Uh, we've got a few more down the road, so uh, stay tuned for the next one. Yeah, and then we're excited as we wrap up the series 
Uh, we'll be coming back to you with a summary of all the interviews. Uh, so that'll be a, uh, one to listen for. Definitely. All right. Thanks so much. All the best. Health, wealth, and success. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Enhancing the Human Experience, A World of Creativity with Mark Phillips. If you liked this episode and want to know more, check out gmarkphillips.com and please leave us a review on YouTube, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.